Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. And uh, we are continuing our series, Little by Little, Finding Your Identity in Christ. And you might have heard the fact that uh, you're coming in the middle, we're continuing our series, and you might be like, man, is that like coming in the middle of a movie? Like, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. I'll catch you up to speed. Don't be too scared by that. Um, we'll get you up to speed. I think you're going to be challenged and encouraged. You won't be lost at all. Let me just say that. So... Uh, but we are continuing in this series. And what we're finding out, the reason why we called it Little by Little, because we're doing a verse-by-verse study in the book of Ephesians. And what we've been saying is, is that as we break this book apart, little by little, we are going to find out who we are in Christ. And I love the timing of this, because I am reminded often that the world would love to tell us who we are, Right? Like the world loves to give us labels or say, this is who you are, or this is who you should be. The world loves to put labels on us. The enemy loves to put labels on us too, right? Like the enemy would love to say, you're a sinner. You did this. You did that. You're over here. Are you kidding me? You're not a Christian. You did these things. But what I love about Ephesians is that the Lord is like, hey, don't listen to the world. Don't listen to what the enemy's telling you. This is who you are in me. And so we've been talking about how Ephesians, it's six chapters, but it divides perfectly down the middle. The first three chapters is all about theology and doctrine. It's talking about what God's plan was for us and his, all about who he is. And then the four through six is all about the practical side, how we work all of that out. And so we've been saying, when we know who we are, then we'll know what to do. And so we're really getting into some of the practical side of Ephesians. And let me just say this. As we dive into this, you might be excited about it, but let me just tell you, Paul might step on your toes a little bit. You might feel like he's getting a little bit in your business. Like You might be like, okay, back up here, Paul. You're kind of offending me a little bit here, but it's going to be good for us because when we know who we are, then we'll know what to do. And so today, Paul is talking about this idea of unity. And how we should be a unified church. And really for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about unity. In fact, today the title of the message is Unity is the Priority. Now we live in a very divided world. And I don't think that comes as a shock to any of us. I didn't see anybody look up and go, what? I had no idea. Like, I think we all know. We read the news. We can see it uh, in the headlines everywhere. We live in a very divided world. It's filled with wars, division, arguments, prejudice, racism, terrorism. And as a result, we have broken relationships. We have a broken economy. We have a broken government. We have broken lives. And we have broken hearts. But I want you to know something. The Bible talks more about the community and the unity that we should have in Jesus than it does talk about heaven or hell. It's that important to God, the unity that we have uh, with one another. In fact, I want to, before we dive into Ephesians chapter 4, I want us to look at a passage in John chapter 17 that really just kind of uh, helps us understand just how important this identity, this unity in Jesus is. In John chapter 17, we're invited into what is arguably one of the most intimate conversations that Jesus has with the heavenly Father. And it's a conversation that Jesus is having on the eve of his crucifixion. 
Now, if you know the context of John chapter 17, Jesus is about to go and die for the sins of the world. And but what he does is he brings his boys with them. He brings his disciples. He's like, hey, guys, you stand over here. You pray. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray for a little while. And so Jesus goes and he prays and he's kneeling down, feeling the weight of the world pressing in on him. This is in a, the, the emotions of this moment is just so real. In fact, it tells us in Luke's gospel that Jesus is sweating drops of blood. That's how intense that, this, uh, that he's feeling right now. That's how intense the moment is. But in the agony of this moment, as Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father, he opens up John chapter 17 with this, Father, the hour has come. See, never has there ever been a truer statement in all of human history than that. The hour has finally come. Because this is the hour that all human history is hanging on. Jesus is going to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. The hour of all of human history is hanging in on this moment. It has come. And Jesus is having a conversation with the Father here. And as you read through this prayer, you get to verse 11. And Jesus says this in his prayer. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus opens up his prayer and he's crying out to the Father. And in verse 11, he's talking about his disciples, that they would be unified. And then as we read about the disciples being unified, we get to verse 20. And Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know who Jesus is talking about in verse 20? He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. And just think about how powerful this is for just a moment. Here is Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. He's heading to the cross. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be betrayed. And he's about to go die on the, for the sins of the world. And what's on his heart? The unity that we would have. The unity of you and I. That we would be unified just as Jesus is unified with the Father. What a call for unity What an expectation for unity. You see, the unity that exists among us, it validates, it confirms, and it authenticates the mission of Jesus, that he came into this world to do what he said he was going to do. He said, the world is going to know that this is real. The way the world is going to know that I'm the real deal. The way the world is going to know that Jesus came to do what he said he came to do is that when the world looks at us, the church... They're going to see this oneness and this unity. And they're going to say, this is not a thing of the world. This is a thing of God. The world is going to look at us. And they're going to see different people that have different backgrounds, that look a little different, talk a little different, act a little different, think a little different. And they're going to see us enjoying a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And because of our right relationship with God, we're going to be enjoying a right relationship with everyone around us. God has always had it on his heart to redeem people and to bring them back to himself. 
God has always had it on his heart to bring people from every tribe, nation, tongue, every people group, and bring them into one family. But like I said earlier, we live in a very divided world. I know many generations would say what I'm about to say, and that is this. I think, at least in my lifetime, that is, we are living in some of the most divided and divisive days that I've ever witnessed personally. And I don't mean just in our nation. Sure, we can look in our nation and see we are definitely divided, but look at our world. We're divided there as well, which is really all very interesting to me because we are supposed to be more connected than we ever have been before because of social media. But yet in this era of connectivity, we are more divided than we ever have been before. We are divided geographically. We are divided culturally. We're divided racially, economically, socially. We are divided between party, uh, political party lines. But here's what we need to understand from Jesus. Jesus is on a mission to unite us with himself. And out of the midst of this divided world, Jesus wants to make us one family with one father and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But don't miss this. Unity does not mean uniformity. We've all been created in the image of God. We all have our own uniqueness and our own differences, but it's our diversity in our unity that makes the church such a beautiful picture. Unity does not mean uniformity, but unity does mean conformity. Here's what I mean by that. We are being conformed into the image of God. See, we've been made in the image of God, but now we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And we begin to have this family resemblance. See, I'll say it this way. We all may have a little bit of differences. We all may think, act, look a little bit different. But the one thing that should unite us, the one thing we should all have in common is Jesus. We should all look like Jesus. And see, that's exactly what Paul is writing about here in the book of Ephesians. And what we've been learning so far is that we all have this identity in Christ. We might have so many differences, yet Jesus is the thing that brings us together. And because of Jesus, we are now one family. And so Paul starts to talk about the unity that should exist in this family. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I want to pause right there for just a minute because I think verse 1, there can be some confusion here in verse 1. Because uh, two times you might have noticed in verse 1, Paul says the word you. Now, when you read this, you might think that it's talking about you personally, right? Right? And I can understand the confusion because it says you. But I think Paul missed an opportunity to be a little Southern here, all right? And I think Paul should have been Southern because it would have helped us understand this a little bit better. And better. And here's what I mean by that. People here in the South, I'm not, you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm not from the South. So um, I'm from the Southwest, but I am not from the South here, right? There's a difference. But people here... Language is something that I like to think of is made up, right? Like, I, you know, and I don't mean to be offensive with that. My apologies. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, sometimes the vocabulary has uh, come into my own, and I, I've said some things. I'm like, where did that just come from? Like, it feels a little weird. My kids go into school. They have Southern friends, obviously, and so they say some things that are very Southern. I'm like, I don't even know that I understand what you just said. 
But Southern people have a made-up language. In fact, I like to think of the Southern language as this. It's more like um, duct tape. You could do a thousand things with it, right? <laughs> That's funny, all right? I've heard people say, I'm fixing to eat. I'm fixing to go there. I'm fixing to do this. Fixing means a lot of things, right? Uh, Jacob, he uh, runs a lot of our media team, and um, he says he comes from God's country, Stewart County. Anybody from there? Oh, boy. We'll pray for you guys. So, um, (laughs) no, it's good. If the apocalypse ever happens, that's where I'm going. So, um, That'll be a whole other sermon. We'll talk about that. So, but I was talking to him and I was like, hey, what do Southern people say? Because Jacob, he could be a little Southern. There's Southern that comes out in him. And so he was telling me, he was like, well, you know, some people in the South, they say musta. And I was like, musta? What is that supposed to mean? Must have. Again, it's duct tape. You're putting two things together. He said, another one is gimme. Give me. He's like, give me some sugar. Like you might hear that. And I'm like, okay, so it's give me. But in the South, it language is like duct tape. You just put it together and it makes a whole other word here. But I think Southern language will help us understand verse one so much better. Because you see, if in the South I'm talking about you, I'm going to say you when I'm talking about you personally. But if I'm talking about everyone, I'm not going to say you because that's confusing. Even though in proper English, you plural and you singular are the same thing. And so we have to figure out, well, is this talking about me or is this talking about us? Is this talking about everybody? Like, what does it mean? But in the South, you all have figured it out. You know what to do. Because if I'm saying you personally, I'm going to say you. But you already know. You're already itching to say it. I can already feel it. If I'm talking about everybody, what do I say? There you go. Wow, that was so Southern. I love it. I love it, (laughs) y'all. Here's what you need to know about what Paul's writing here. A lot of people, they'll read verse one and they're thinking, this verse is about me, 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 me. No, 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 no. It's about all of us. In fact, Paul should have wrote it this way. He says, I urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you all have, or CSI still failed it, to which you all have been called. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Everybody just say a prayer for me. Maybe I'll become Southern one day, all right? In Jesus' name, all right? So, <laughs> but really what he's saying here makes complete sense because he uses the word therefore. And I want to teach you something. Anytime you see the Bible, the word therefore you need to know what it's there for. And so really, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, is connecting everything. It's a bridge to everything he's been talking about in verses 1 through 3. And he uses that word to say, hey, th- those aren't just one thought. This is a lot of thoughts. This is everything together. Because Paul has been writing about this doctrinal, theological truth about who we are collectively. And now he's saying, y'all ought to be living this out together. And so he gives us a list, and he says this in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Those words demand community. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, Paul is writing to us about being a church united, And I want to say two things about it today in the time that we have left. And the first one is this. We are to walk together in unity. Verse 1 says again, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As the body of Christ, as a church family, 
We are to walk together in unity. Paul uses this phrase. He says, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to walk worthy. But what does it mean to walk worthy? Is it how you stretch your stuff around town and people are like, oh, they must be a Christian by the way that they walk? No, it's not what he's talking about at all. It's a figurative language describing the way that we need to live our life. Again, what Paul's been writing about and teaching us about over the last three chapters is now that we've been reconciled back to God, now that we have this right relationship with him, it now affects the way that we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is going to be talking about how we live, how we uh, do relationships, and how we're supposed to do community with one another. So how are we to walk worthy of the calling that we have? Let's break it down a little bit. The word worthy is an interesting word because it comes from the Greek where we get balancing the scales from. In fact, I brought a picture to show you. Uh, This is a scale that you would have seen in the marketplace during Jesus's time. And you would see these scales everywhere anytime a transaction was taking place. Because what they wanted to make sure is that whatever you were getting was equal to what you were giving. And so they would weigh it. If you were bartering or exchanging one thing for another, they would put one thing on one side of the scale and the other thing on the other side of the scale because they wanted to make sure that it was equal weight. Again, whatever you were getting was equal to what you were giving. We use the same phrase today. If you're a sports fan, you're going to say someone is a worthy opponent, meaning that they're equal to in their desire to win or in their skill. We say that someone is worthy of their wage, meaning how they work is worthy of what they are getting paid. And really what Paul is getting at here in verse one is that the way we live our lives, the way that we relate to one another in community should be placed on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is the calling to which we have been called. Let me say it this way. Our daily living should match our spiritual position as a child of God. Who I am in Christ is now going to reflect Christ in me. Because who I am in Christ should be demonstrated in how I live for Christ. See, our our being right with God vertically should reflect radically how we relate to one another horizontally. So how do we walk together in unity? Paul gives us a list. It's definitely not an exhaustive list, but uh, it's a good starting point. He says in verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are all characteristics of what it looks like for a person who knows who they are in Christ, then they'll know what to do. And it's being worked out in our lives, in our relationships with other people in Christ. And so what I want us to do is I want to break down those four things that he says. And I'm going to give you a quick bird's eye view of what it looks like. And the first one is humility. Now we are to walk together in humility. Now humility means putting the needs of others ahead of yourself. Now again, we're talking about y'all. So in the context of the church, guess what? Church is no longer about me. It's not about me getting my needs met. Church is about God using me to meet the needs of others. If you're here at Awaken, and I'm glad that you are here, but if God has brought you here to Awaken, then Awaken is not about you just getting your needs met, but about you meeting the needs of other people. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I understand that there are people who are broken, who are hurting, who need some time to be cared for. And listen, we are here for you. That's what we're here for. We want to we meet your needs. But listen, there's a point where you got to stop sitting and getting needs met, and you got to start meeting some other people's needs. And if you're wondering when that time is, we've got a lot of pastors, a lot of ministry leaders. I would love to talk with you about what does that look like in your life. And we are here to help you get your needs met, but we are not here just to be an entertainment factory. We are here for you to meet the needs of other people. See, I've said this since really the beginning of the year. What if we showed up on a Sunday, not with our hands out, what can I get, give me, give me, give me, but with our eyes open, how can I step in and meet the needs of others? That's a walk of humility. And really, isn't that what Jesus modeled for us? The most defining characteristic, the most defining mark in Jesus's life, he even said it of himself. You know it. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to what? To serve. Humility. It's not about being served, but serving others. Paul talking about humility is very countercultural then. In the first century writings, when you talked about humility, it was a way of making fun of somebody. But really, nothing's that different than today, right? What do we say? Treat yourself. You got to treat yourself, pamper yourself. You got to take care of yourself. What's the common theme there? Yourself. We're so focused on ourselves that we miss everybody else. Humility isn't thinking so much about yourself, but thinking less about yourself. So the next thing he talks about is gentleness. Now, when I read gentleness, and maybe some of you guys could agree, when you hear it, you're like, ugh, that doesn't sound so great. It doesn't sound so manly, right? But gentleness is not weakness here. Gentleness is strength under control. See, gentleness here in the Greek describes a horse that's been broken. This horse still has all of its power, all of its strength, yet it has somebody riding the horse with the reins, controlling the horse where it needs to go. It's strength under control. And as we walk worthy, we will walk in gentleness, allowing the Holy Spirit to control us, allowing the Holy Spirit to control our actions, our reactions, our words, allowing the Holy Spirit to control every uh, part of our lives for the good of others. So it's strength under control. And then there's patience. Now, Paul here isn't describing patience uh, in circumstances or situations that you just need to be patient to overcome your troubling times. What he's talking about here is being patient with people. And we're to be patient with people based on their position in the family and not their performance in the family, meaning this. You don't relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ based off of how they treated you. You relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ and they have been redeemed and forgiven and their sins are covered by the shed blood of Jesus just like your sins have been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus. You see, patience matters because your area of strength may be someone else's area of weakness. Awakened church is not a perfect place. We're full of imperfect people. None of us are perfect. And if you're here checking out Awaken, I hate to tell you that right now, we're a great place, but we're not a perfect place. And so if you're looking for it, this ain't it. But if you think you found the perfect church, let me tell you, you just ruined it because you're not perfect either. And so you're going to ruin that perfect church, right? 
We are not perfect people. We have not arrived there yet. And here's where we get impatient with people. When we see a weakness in them, that's a strength in us. And we wonder why. Why haven't they gotten there? Why can't they figure this out? And so we get so impatient with them, but we need to be patient. Here's what you need to know. There will come a time, believe it or not, there will come a time when someone's going to have to be uh, exercise patience with you because they're going to be strong in an area that you are weak in. And so they're going to have to practice patience and grace with you. And then finally, there's bearing with one another in love. It's the idea of choosing to love others for their own benefit and not for mine. It's continuing to love people even when they've done things towards us that are unlovable. The word for love here in the Greek is agape, love. If you've been around church, you understand what kind of love that is, but it's the God kind of love, the way that God has loved us. Humility, gentleness, patience are really a crescendo to love. They are really all rooted in this idea of love. When we choose to love, we demonstrate humility, gentleness, and patience with one another. My challenge for you is what if we looked at people through the lens of agape love? And then when we look at people through that lens, even if they say things, do things, hurt us, harm us, if we're always looking at people through that lens of agape love, we will want nothing but their good. We will always feel love and kindness toward them. And I know what you might be thinking as we've read these three verses and as we're breaking this down a little bit, you might be like, all right, pastor. This is a high utopia type of life here. I mean, come on, this is very idealistic. I don't know what planet you're from, pastor, but you know, here in the real world, like that's not happening at all. That's not possible. But can I let you in on a little secret? You're right. It's not possible in our own strength. But that's why Paul spent the last three chapters telling us who we are in Christ. You see, Jesus has called us to love with this kind of love. Jesus loved us when we didn't love him. Jesus loved us when we were unlovable, when we were choosing sin, when we were living in rebellion, when we wanted nothing to do with Jesus, Jesus still loved us. And let me tell you, how many times is it that we've just walked across the love of Jesus and been like, oh, well, God will love me anyways. And and it's true. God loves us anyways, even though we've chosen to do what we've wanted to do. How many times have we acted like God is some genie in a bottle who's there to just give us whatever we wish to meet all of our needs? And yet in, our, and yet in his humility, he still meets our needs anyways. How many times have we been impatient and frustrated with God and we throw a tantrum like a two-year-old stomping our feet, going, come on, God, don't you get this? And we're impatient and we're frustrated and yet God has demonstrated his grace and his patience and his love with us over and over and over again. And what Paul is saying is that the same Jesus that has loved you, been patient with you, who's been humble and gentle with you, longs for you to live that out among each other. It's impossible in our own strength. But because we know our identity is in Christ, and Christ is in us, it becomes a possibility to see this radical unity. Going back to John chapter 17, 
Jesus said that when you have that type of unity, that's when the world will go, they must, that is a thing of God. That the world will look at our differences and all of our uniqueness and go, that is not a thing of this world. Jesus must be the real deal. But let's just be honest. In our own flesh, we're not getting there. <laughs> you know? We say things like, well, I'm going to hold on to that right there, what you said or what you did. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm not going to let go on that. I'm going to hold on to that tide, and I'm going to put that in my back pocket when I need it because you did something to me, and I'm going to do something to you. But let me just ask you, aren't you glad Jesus didn't relate to us like that? Jesus didn't hold on to things against us, so we shouldn't either. So we are to walk together in unity. Here's the second thing. We are to work together for unity. We are to work together for unity. Verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul didn't tell us to create this unity. Why? Because we didn't create this kind of unity. God created this. See, we have this spiritual unity that's rooted in our relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit has united us, has brought us together. We cannot create this kind of unity, but here's what Paul wants us to understand. While we didn't create this kind of unity, we sure can kill this kind of unity. I've grown up in the church my whole life. Uh, my parents were heavily involved in different churches, and so I then became heavily involved in a lot of churches. I've been planning Awaken for almost 12 years now, and so um, it's been a while. I've, I've, and what I've witnessed is that there's many Christians, many brothers and sisters in Christ that I have witnessed destroy the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. And so Paul is saying that we need to be diligent, meaning that we need to make every effort possible to work ourselves to exhaustion, to keep the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. That word uh, preserve means to watch over and to care for. And really verse three is linked to verse one when Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. We've talked about how Paul didn't write this letter to the church in Ephesus in luxury, but he wrote this in a Roman prison cell chained to a Roman guard. And this guard was constantly watching over Paul. And Paul's like, just as I'm a prisoner right here and they have a guard constantly watching over me, I am begging you, I am pleading with you, I'm urging you to watch over, to care for, and to fight for the unity in the family of God. Because he knows, and the reality is, the enemy would love nothing more than to bring division here. The reason why? Because this is a perfect reflection of God the Father and Jesus being united. And because there is an enemy trying to tear this down, we have to fight so how do we diligently preserve the unity that Christ has given us? There's two questions that I want us to reflect on. And the first one is this. Am I always ready to forgive when I've been wronged by someone? Am I always ready to forgive when I've been wronged by someone? If we're going to do everything that we can to fight for the unity, then what you need to know is this. You are going to get wronged. It's just a matter of fact. Let's just get that out of the way. You are going to get wronged. Listen, there was a whole other service filling up this venue. 
And there's a lot of people who call Awakened Church their home church. And the reality is you can't get this many people together and not expect to get wrong. It's going to happen. Listen, including myself, I have five people living in my house and two dogs. And everybody in that house is getting wronged, right? The boys are getting wronged. Jen's getting wronged. I'm getting wronged. The dogs are getting wronged. The boys again are getting wronged. Like it happens and there's only five of us and two dogs. So you can't get this many people together and not expect it to get wronged. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to say some things. We're going to do some things that are just going to be hurtful. And here's what the enemy would love for you to do. He would love for you to wrap your heart, to hold on tight to those things that were said or done to you, and then to tell other people to build your case on why you're right and they are wrong. And you know, we do it all the time. It's called gossip. But we over-spiritualize it. And we say, I need prayer. I've got some prayer requests, right? And we say, could you pray for me? Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. Well, what can I be praying for? Well, do you know what this person just did to me? And we just blah all over all of our problems, all of our issues on that person. But here's the question. Am I always ready to forgive? Paul, in another book of the Bible, he's writing about this similar thought. He's writing this to a church in Ephesus, but he also writes another letter um, called Colossians, and he's writing this to the people in Colossae, and he says this in verse 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Sound familiar? Same kind of idea. He goes on to say, whoever has the complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you also should forgive. You might be thinking, well, they haven't asked me yet. I'm not going to forgive them until they come and ask me. But aren't you glad Jesus didn't wait for you to ask? That he went to the cross to die, to purchase you, to redeem you. He didn't wait for you to realize that you needed forgiveness. He went ahead and he purchased your forgiveness on that cross before you ever knew you needed it. Now listen, I'm not saying there aren't steps that need to be taken when somebody wrongs you because there are steps that need to be taken. But here is what I am telling you. By not going ahead and forgiving people that have hurt you, that have wronged you, who've done things against you, you're not hurting them. You're only hurting yourself. And I'll even take it a step further and say that I would even say that you're being unbiblical and you've even done more harm. How would you expect God to forgive you if you just simply can't forgive other people? See, I think when we do this and when we hold on to that, we need to first go to the Father and ask for forgiveness. And then we need to go and ask forgiveness to other people. This idea of forgiving each other is in the present tense, which means that it's just ongoing. It's continuous. I think Paul would tell us, you need to have a posture of forgiveness. I would even take it a step further and say, let's outdo each other in forgiving one another. You say it's not possible. You're right, except Christ in us makes it possible. Here's the second question. Am I always seeking to reconcile when I've wronged someone? Am I always seeking to reconcile when I've wronged someone? So if someone in Christ has wronged you, you need to be ready to forgive. But on the other side of it is this. If you have wronged somebody, you need to be quick to go and make it right. And you might be thinking, well, what's the proof text? Who said this? 
Glad you asked. Because Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, basically when you're at church and you're ready to worship and you're excited and you're pumped up about it, and there you remember your brother did something against you, meaning you did something and you know you did something wrong, leave your offering and wait a few years to go make it right. That's not what he says. He says, leave your offering and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering." Here's what Jesus said. You can't be right and worship God if you haven't made it right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're just going through the motion. You're just being noisy. Restoring broken relationships is that important to Jesus that he commanded that it take priority over church. Don't procrastinate. Don't make excuses. Don't make empty promises like, well, I'll get around to it someday. First, be reconciled and then worship. You might say, okay, fine. You've convinced me. But when they come to me, then I will reconcile. No, you've missed the point again. God expects you to take the first step. He expects you to be the peacemaker. You make the first move. It doesn't matter if you're the offended one or you are the offender. God always says it's your move first. See, my prayer this week for Awaken is that we would be a church that builds bridges and not one that builds walls. And I was here last night, and, and I was praying over this venue. And I was praying for you. And I was praying that we would always be a church unified. That the city of Clarksville would look into the walls of Awakened Church, and they would see people of different backgrounds, different ways that they were raised, talk a little bit different. I'm talking about myself right there act a little bit different, think a little bit different, but they would look at Awakened Church and go, that is a thing of God. They would know Jesus is real because we are enjoying our right relationship with our Heavenly Father, and because of that, we're enjoying a right relationship with each other. And so what I want us to do is we're going to pray like we always do, but normally I would say, okay, do this stuff this week and and see what God's going to do in your life, but Jesus was so... um, emphatic about the the fact that we are supposed to leave our offering and first be reconciled. And so as we close in prayer, we're going to leave our offering for a minute. And we're going to go to the Lord and we're going to ask him these questions. And we're going to ask him, is there any, any place where I need to forgive someone? Or is there any place that I need to be reconciled back to someone? And then we will come back and we will worship. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.